Chapter 6. Water, Water. In two hours' time, about four o'clock, I woke up. As soon as the first heavy demand of bodily fatigue had been satisfied, the torturing thirst from which I was suffering asserted itself. I could sleep no more. I had been dreaming that I was bathing in a running stream with green banks and trees upon them, and I woke to find myself in that arid wilderness, and to remember that, as Umbopa had said, if we did not find water that day, we must certainly perish miserably. No human creature could live long without water in that heat. I sat up and rubbed my grimy face with my dry and horny hands. My lips and eyelids were stuck together, and it was only after some rubbing and with an effort that I was able to open them. It was not far off the dawn, but there was none of the bright feel of dawn in the air, which was thick with a hot murkiness I cannot describe. The others were still sleeping. Presently it began to grow light enough to read, so I drew out a little pocket copy of the Ingoldsby Legends I had brought with me, and read the Jackdaw of Reims. When I got to where a nice little boy held a golden ewer, embossed and filled with water as pure as any that flows between Reims and Namur, I literally smacked my cracked lips, or rather tried to smack them. The mere thought of that pure water made me mad. If the cardinal had been there with his bell, book, and candle, I would have whipped in and drunk his water up. Yes, even if he'd already filled it with the suds of soap worthy of washing the hands of the Pope. And I knew that the whole consecrated curse of the Catholic Church should fall upon me for so doing. I almost think I must have been a little lightheaded with thirst and weariness and want of food, for I fell to thinking how astonished the Cardinal and his nice little boy and the jackdaw would have looked to see a burnt-up, brown-eyed, grizzled-haired little elephant hunter suddenly bound in and put his dirty face into the basin and swallow every drop of the precious water. The idea amused me so that I laughed, or rather cackled aloud, which woke the others up, and they began to rub their dirty faces and get their gummed-up lips and eyelids apart. As soon as we were all well awake, we fell to discussing the situation, which was serious enough. Not a drop of water was left. We turned the water bottles upside down and licked the tops, but it was a failure. They were as dry as a bone. Good, who had charge of the bottle of brandy, got it out and looked at it longingly, but Sir Henry promptly took it away from him, for to drink raw spirit would have only been to precipitate the end. If we do not find water, we shall die, he said. If we can trust to the old Dom's map, there should be some about, I said, but nobody seemed to derive much satisfaction from that remark. It was so evident that no great faith could be put in the map. It was now gradually growing light, and we sat blankly staring at each other. I observed the Hottentot, Ben Vogel, rise and begin to walk about with his eyes on the ground. Presently he stopped short, and uttering a guttural exclamation, pointed to the earth. "'What is it?' we exclaimed, and simultaneously rose and went to where he was standing pointing at the ground. "'Well,' I said, "'it's a pretty fresh springbok spore.' "'What of it? "'Springbok do not go far from water,' he answered in Dutch. "'No,' I answered. "'I forgot, and thank God for it.' "'This little discovery put new life into us. "'It is wonderful how, when one is in a desperate position, "'one catches at the slightest hope and feels almost happy in it. "'On a dark night a single star is better than nothing.' 
Meanwhile, Ben Vogel was lifting his snub nose and sniffing the hot air for all the world like an old impala ram who scents danger. Presently, he spoke again. "'I smell water,' he said. Then we felt quite jubilant, for we knew what a wonderful instinct these wild-bred men possess. Just at that moment the sun came up gloriously, and reveled so grand a sight to our astonished eyes that for a moment or two we even forgot our thirst. For there, not more than forty or fifty miles from us, glittering like silver in the early rays of the morning sun, were Sheba's breasts, and stretching away for hundreds of miles on each side of them was the great Sudamon Berg. Now that I, sitting here, attempt to describe the extraordinary grandeur and beauty of that sight, language seems to fail me. I am impotent even before its memory. There, straight before us, were two enormous mountains, the like of which are not, I believe, to be seen anywhere else in Africa, if indeed there are any other such in the world, measuring at least 15,000 feet in height, standing not more than a dozen miles apart, "'connected by a precipitous cliff of rock "'and towering up in awful white solemnity "'straight into the sky. "'These mountains standing thus, "'like the pillars of a gigantic gateway, "'are shaped exactly like a woman's breast. "'The stretch of cliff which connected them "'appeared to be some thousand feet in height "'and perfectly precipitous, "'and on each side of them, "'as far as the eye could reach, "'extended similar lines of cliff, "'broken only here and there "'by flat table-topped mountains.' "'something like the world-famed one at Cape Town, "'a formation, by the way, very common in Africa. "'To describe the grandeur of the whole view "'is beyond my powers. "'There was something so inexpressibly solemn "'and overpowering about those huge volcanoes, "'for doubtless they are extinct volcanoes, "'that it fairly took our breath away. "'For a while the morning lights played upon the snow "'and the brown and swelling masses beneath, "'and then, as though to veil the majestic sight "'from our curious eyes, Strange mists and clouds gathered and increased around them, till presently we could only trace their pure and gigantic outline swelling ghost-like through the fleecy envelope. Indeed, as we afterwards discovered, they were normally wrapped in this curious, gauzy mist. The mountains had scarcely vanished into cloud-clad privacy before our thirst, literally a burning question, reasserted itself. It was all very well for Vent Vogel to say he smelt water, but look which way we would, we could see no signs of it. So far as the eye could reach, there was nothing but arid sweltering sand and Karoo scrub. We walked round the hillock and gazed about anxiously on the other side, but it was the same story. Not a drop of water was to be seen. There was no indication of a pan, a pool, or a spring. You are a fool! I said angrily to Vent Vogel. There is no water. But still he lifted his ugly snub nose and sniffed. I smell it, boss, he answered. It is somewhere in the air. Sir Henry stroked his yellow beard thoughtfully. Perhaps it is on top of the hill, he suggested. Rot, said Good. Who ever heard of water being found on the top of a hill? "'Let us go and look,' I put in, and hopelessly enough we scrambled up the sandy sides of the hillock, Umbopa leading, as though he was, pet as though he was petrified. "'Nanzia, manzi! Here is water!' he cried with a loud voice. 
we rushed up to him, and there, sure enough, in a deep cup or indentation on the very top of the sand copy, was an undoubted pool of water. How it came to be in such a strange place, we didn't stop to inquire, nor did we hesitate at its black and uninviting appearance. It was water, or a good imitation of it, and that was enough for us. We gave a bound and a rush, and in another second were all down on our stomachs, sucking up the uninviting fluid as though it were nectar fit for gods. Heavens, how we did drink! Then, when we had done drinking, we tore off our clothes and sat down on it, absorbing the moisture through our parched skins. You, my reader, who have only to turn on a couple of taps and summon hot and cold from an unseen vasty boiler, can have little idea of the luxury of that muddy wallow in brackish, tepid water. After a while we arose from it, refreshed indeed, and fell too on our biltong, of which we had scarcely been able to touch a mouthful for twenty-four hours, and ate our fill. Then we smoked a pipe, and lay down by the side of that blessed pool under the overhanging shadow of the bank, and slept till midday. All that day we rested there by the water, thanking our stars that we had been lucky enough to find it, bad as it was, and not forgetting to render a due share of gratitude to the shade of the long-departed Da Silvestre, who had corked it down so accurately on the tail of his shirt. The wonderful thing to us was that it should have lasted so long, and the only way that I can account for it is by the supposition that it is fed by some spring deep down in the sand." Having filled both ourselves and our water bottles as full as possible, in far better spirits, we started off again with the moon. That night we covered nearly five and twenty miles, but, needless to say, found no more water, though we were lucky enough on the following day to get a little shade behind some ant heaps. When the sun rose and, for a while, cleared away the mysterious mist, Suleiman's berg and the two majestic breasts now only about twenty miles off, seemed to be towering right above us, and looked grander than ever. At the approach of evening we started on again, and to cut a long story short, by daylight next morning found ourselves upon the lowest slopes of Sheba's left breast, for which we had been steadily steering. By this time our water was again exhausted, and we were suffering severely from thirst, nor indeed could we see any chance of relieving it till we reached the snow line far, far above us. After resting an hour or two, driven to it by our torturing thirst, we went on again, toiling painfully in the burning heat up the lava slopes, but we found that the huge base of the mountain was composed entirely of lava beds belched out in some far past age. By eleven o'clock we were utterly exhausted and were, generally speaking, in a very bad way indeed. The lava clinker over which we had to make our way, though comparatively smooth compared with some clinker I've heard of, such as that on the island of Ascension, for instance, was yet rough enough to make our feet very sore, and this, together with our other miseries, had pretty well finished us. A few hundred yards above us were some large lumps of lava, and toward those we made with the intention of lying down beneath their shade. We reached them, and to our surprise, so far as we had a capacity for surprise left in us, on a little plateau on a ridge close by, we saw that the lava was covered with a dense green growth, 
Evidently, soil formed from decomposed lava had rested there, and in due course had become the receptacle of seeds deposited by birds. But we did not take much further interest in the green growth, for one cannot live on grass like Nebuchadnezzar. That requires a special dispensation of providence and peculiar digestive organs. So we sat down under the rocks and groaned, and I for one heartily wished that we had never started on this fool's errand. As we were sitting there, I saw Umbopa get up and hobble off towards the patch of green, and a few minutes afterwards, to my great astonishment, I perceived that unusually uncommonly dignified, I perceived that unusually uncommonly dignified individual dancing and shouting like a maniac and waving something green. Off we all scrambled towards him as fast as our wearied limbs would carry us, hoping that he had found water. What is it, Umbopa? I shouted in Zulu. It is food and water, Makumazan. And again he waved at the green thing. Then I saw what he had got. It was a melon. We had hit upon a patch of wild melons, thousands of them, and dead ripe. Melons! I yelled to Good, who was next to me. And in another second, he had his false teeth fixed in one. I think we ate about six each before we had done and poor fruit as they were, I doubt if I ever thought anything nicer. But melons are not very satisfying, and when we had satisfied over thirst with their pulpy substance, and set a stock to cool by the simple process of cutting them in two, and setting them end-on in the hot sun to get cold by evaporation, we began to feel exceedingly hungry. We had still some biltong left, but our stomachs turned from biltong, and besides we had to be very sparing of it, "'but we could not say when we should get more food. "'Just at this moment a lucky thing happened. "'Looking towards the desert, "'I saw a flock of about ten large birds "'flying straight towards us. "'Skeet, boss, skeet! "'Shoot, master, shoot!' whispered the Hottentot, "'throwing himself on his face, "'an example which we all followed. "'Then I saw that the birds were a flock of paw, "'boostards, and that they would pass "'within fifty yards of my head.' Taking one of the repeating Winchesters, I waited till they were nearly over us, and then jumped onto my feet. On seeing me, the paw bunched up together, as I expected they would, and I fired two shots straight into the thick of them. And as luck would have it, brought one down, a fine fellow, that weighed about twenty pounds. In half an hour we had a fire made of dry melon stalks, and he was toasting over it, and we had such a feed as we had not had for a week. We ate that paw. Nothing was left of him but his bones and his beak, and felt not a little the better afterwards. That night we again went on with the moon, carrying as many melons as we could with us. As we got higher up, we found the air get cooler and cooler, which was a great relief to us, and at dawn, so far as we could judge, were not more than about a dozen miles from the snow line. Here we found more melons, so had no longer any anxiety about water for we knew that we should soon get plenty of snow. But the ascent had now become very precipitous, and we made but slow progress, not more than a mile an hour. Also that night we ate our last morsel of biltong. As yet, with the exception of the paw, we had seen no living thing on the mountain, nor had we come across a single spring or stream of water, which struck us very odd, considering all the snow above us, which must, we thought, melt sometimes. But as we afterwards discovered, owing to some cause which is quite beyond my power to explain, 
all the streams flowed down upon the north side of the mountains. We now began to grow very anxious about food. We had escaped death by thirst, but it seemed probable that it was only to die of hunger. The events of the next three miserable days are best described by copying the entries made at the time in my notebook. 21st of May. Start at 11 a.m. Finding the atmosphere quite cold enough to travel by day, carrying some watermelons with us. Struggled on all day, but saw no more melons, having evidently passed out of their district. Saw no game of any sort. Halted for a night at sundown, having had no food for many hours. Suffered much during the night from cold. The 22nd. Started at sunrise again, feeling very faint and weak. Only made five miles all day. Found some patches of snow, of which we ate, but nothing else. Camped at night under the edge of a great plateau. Cold, bitter. Drank a little brandy each, and huddled ourselves together, each wrapped up in our blankets to keep ourselves alive. Are now suffering frightfully from starvation and weariness. Thought that Vent Vogel would have died during the night. 23rd. Struggled forward once more as soon as the sun was well up, and had thawed our limbs a little. We are now in a dreadful plight, and I fear that unless we get food, this will be our last day's journey. But little brandy left. Good, Sir Henry and Umbopa bear up wonderfully, but Vent Vogel is in a very bad way. Like most Hottentots, he cannot stand the cold. Pangs of hunger not so bad, but have a sort of numb feeling about the stomach. Others say the same. We are now on a level with the precipitous chain or wall of lava, connecting the two breasts, and the view is glorious. Behind us the great glowing desert rolls away to the horizon, and before us lies mile upon mile of smooth, hard snow, almost level, but swelling gently upwards, out of the center of which the nipple of the mountain, which appears to be some miles in circumference, rises about four thousand feet into the sky. Not a living thing is to be seen. God help us. I fear our time has come. And now I will drop the journal, partly because it is not very interesting reading, and partly because what follows requires perhaps rather more accurate telling. All that day, the 23rd of May, we struggled slowly on up the incline of snow, lying down from time to time to rest. A strange, gaunt crew we must have looked, as, laden as we were, we dragged our weary feet over the dazzling plain, glaring round us with hungry eyes. Not that there was much use in glaring, for there was nothing to eat. We did not do more than seven miles that day. Just before sunset we found ourselves right under the nipple of Sheba's left breast, which towered up thousands of feet into the air above us, a vast, smooth hillock of frozen snow. Bad as we felt, we could not but appreciate the wonderful scene, made even more wonderful by the flying rays of light from the setting sun, which here and there stained the snow blood-red and crowned the towering mass above us, with a diadem of glory. "'I say,' gasped Good, presently, "'we ought to be somewhere near the cave the old gentleman wrote about.' "'Yes,' said I, "'if there is a cave.' "'Come, Quartermain,' groaned Sir Henry, 
Don't talk like that. I have every faith in the dam. Remember the water. We shall find the place soon. If we don't find it before dark, we're dead men. That's all there is, was my consolatory reply. For the next ten minutes we trudged on in silence, when suddenly Umbopa, who was marching along beside me, wrapped up in his blanket, and with a leather belt strapped so tight around his stomach to make his hunger small, as he said, that his waist looked like a girl's, caught me by the arm. "'Look!' he said, pointing towards the springing slope of the nipple. I followed his glance, and perceived some two hundred yards from us what appeared to be a hole in the snow. "'It is the cave,' said Umbopa. We made the best of our way to the spot, and found, sure enough, that the hole was the mouth of a cave, no doubt the same as that of which Da Silvestre wrote. We were none too soon, for just as we reached shelter the sun went down with startling rapidity, leaving the whole place nearly dark. In these latitudes there is but little twilight. We crept into the cave, which did not appear to be very big, and huddling ourselves together for warmth, swallowed what remained of our brandy, barely a mouthful each, and tried to forget our miseries in sleep. But this the cold was too intense to allow us to do. I am convinced that at that great altitude the thermometer cannot have been less than 14 or 15 degrees below freezing. What this meant to us, enervated as we were by hardship, want of food, and the great heat of the desert, my reader can imagine better than I can describe. Suffice it to say that it was something as near death from exposure as I have ever felt. There we sat hour after hour through the bitter night, feeling the frost wander round and nip us now in the finger, now in the foot, and now in the face. In vain did we huddle up closer and closer. There was no warmth in our miserable, starved carcasses. Sometimes one of us would drop into an uneasy slumber for a few minutes, but we could not sleep long, and perhaps it was fortunate, for I doubt if we should ever have woke again. I believe it was only by force of will that we kept ourselves alive at all. Not very long before dawn I heard the Hottentot, Vent Vogel, whose teeth had been chattering all night like castanets, give a deep sigh, and then his teeth stopped chattering. I did not think anything of it at the time, concluding that he had gone to sleep. His back was rested against mine, and it seemed to grow colder and colder, till at last it was like ice. At length the air began to grow gray with light, then swift golden arrows came flashing across the snow, and at last the glorious sun peeped up above the lava wall and looked in upon our half-frozen forms and upon Vent Vogel, sitting there amongst us, stone dead. No wonder his back had felt cold. Poor fellow. He had died when I heard him sigh and was now almost frozen stiff. Shocked beyond measure, we dragged ourselves from the corpse, strange the horror we all have of the companionship of a dead body, and left it still sitting there with its arms clasped around its knees. By this time the sunlight was pouring its cold rays, for here they were cold, straight in the mouth of the cave. Suddenly I heard an exclamation of fear from someone, "'and turned my head down the cave. "'And this was what I saw. "'Sitting at the end of it, "'for it was not more than twenty feet long, 
was another form, of which the head rested on the chest and the long arms hung down. I stared at it, and saw that it, too, was a dead man, and what was more, a white man. The others saw it, too, and the sight proved too much for our shattered nerves. One and all we scrambled out of the cave as fast as our half-frozen limbs would allow. Chapter 7. Solomon's Road Outside the cave we halted, feeling rather foolish. "'I am going back,' said Sir Henry. "'Why?' asked Good. "'Because it has struck me that what we saw may be my brother.' This was a new idea, and we re-entered the cave to put it to the proof. After the bright light outside, our eyes, weak as they were with staring at the snow, could not for a while pierce the gloom of the cave.' Presently, however, we grew accustomed to the semi-darkness and advanced on the dead form. Sir Henry knelt down and peered into its face. "'Thank God,' he said with a sigh of relief. "'It is not my brother.' Then I went and looked. The corpse was that of a tall man in middle life with aquiline features, grizzled hair, and a long black mustache. The skin was perfectly yellow and stretched tightly over the bones." Its clothing, with the exception of what seemed to be the remains of a woolen pair of hose, had been removed, leaving the skeleton-like frame naked. Round the neck hung a yellow ivory crucifix. The corpse was frozen, perfectly stiff. "'Who on earth can it be?' said I. "'Can't you guess?' asked Good. I shook my head. "'Why, the old Dom!' "'Jose da Silvestre, of course. Who else?' "'Impossible,' I gasped. "'He died three hundred years ago.' "'And what is there to prevent his lasting for three thousand years in this atmosphere, I should like to know?' asked Good. "'If only the air is cold enough, flesh and blood will keep as fresh as New Zealand mutton forever, and heaven knows it's cold enough here. The sun never gets in here.' No animal comes here to tear or destroy. No doubt his slave, of whom he speaks on the map, took off his clothes and left him. He couldn't have buried him alone. Look here, he went on, stooping down and picking up a queer-shaped bone scraped at the end into a sharp point. Here is the cleft bone that he used to draw the map with. We gazed astonished for a moment, forgetting our own miseries in this extraordinary and, as it seemed to us, "'Semi-miraculous sight.' "'Aye,' said Sir Henry. "'And here is where he got his ink from.' "'And he pointed to a small wound on the dead man's left arm. "'Did ever man see such a thing before?' "'There was no longer any doubt about the matter, "'which I confess for my own part perfectly appalled me. "'There he sat, the dead man, "'whose directions, written some ten generations ago, "'had led us to this spot.' There in my own hand was the rude pen with which he had written them, and there around his neck was the crucifix his dying lips had kissed. Gazing at him, my imagination could reconstruct the whole scene, the traveler dying of cold and starvation, and yet striving to convey the great secret he had discovered to the world, the awful loneliness of his death, of which the evidence sat before us. It even seemed to me that I could trace in his strongly marked features a likeness to those of my poor friend Silvestre, his descendant, who had died twenty years ago in my arms, 
"'but perhaps that was fancy. "'At any rate, there he sat, "'a sad memento of the fate that so often overtakes "'those who would penetrate into the unknown. "'And there probably he will still sit, "'crowned with the dread majesty of death, "'for centuries yet unborn, "'to startle the eyes of wanderers like ourselves, "'if any should ever come again to invade his loneliness.' The thing overpowered us, already nearly done to death as we were, with cold and hunger. Let us go, said Sir Henry, in a low voice. Stay, we will give him a companion. And lifting up the dead body of the Hottentot Ben Vogel, he placed it near that of the old Dom. Then he stooped down, and with a jerk broke the rotten string of the crucifix round his neck, for his fingers were too cold to attempt to unfasten it. I believe that he still has that. I took the pen, and it is before me as I write. Sometimes I sign my name with it. Then, leaving those two, the proud white man of a past age, and the poor Hottentot, to keep their eternal vigil in the midst of the eternal snows, we crept out of the cave into the welcome sunshine, and resumed our path, wondering in our hearts how many hours it would be before we were even as they are. When we had gone about a half a mile, we came to the edge of the plateau, for the nipple of the mountain did not rise out of its exact center, though from the desert side it seemed to do so. What lay below us we could not see, for the landscape was wreathed in billows of morning mist. Presently, however, the higher layers of mist cleared a little, and revealed some five hundred yards beneath us, at the end of a long slope of snow, a patch of green grass "'through which a stream was running. "'Nor was this all. "'By the stream, basking in the morning sun, "'stood and lay a group of from ten to fifteen large antelopes. "'At that distance we could not see what they were. "'The sight filled us with unreasoning joy. "'There was food in plenty, if only we could get it. "'But the question was how to get it. The beasts were fully six hundred yards off, a very long shot, and one not to be depended on when one's life hung on the results. Rapidly we discussed the advisability of trying to stalk the game, but finally reluctantly dismissed it. To begin with, the wind was not favorable, and further, we should be certain to be perceived, however careful we were, against the blinding background of snow, which we should be obliged to traverse. "'Well, we must have a try from where we are,' said Sir Henry. "'Which shall it be, Quartermain, the repeating rifles or the expresses?' "'Here again was a question. "'The Winchester repeaters, of which we had two, "'Umbopa carrying poor Vent Vogels as well as his own, "'were sighted up to a thousand yards, "'whereas the expresses were only sighted to three hundred and fifty, "'beyond which distance shooting with them was more or less guesswork.' On the other hand, if they did hit, the express bullets being expanding were much more likely to bring the game down. It was a knotty point, but I made up my mind that we must risk it and use the expresses. Let each of us take the buck opposite to him, aim well at the point of the shoulder, and high up, said I, and Umbopa, do you give the word so that we may all fire together. There came a pause, each man aiming his level best, 
as indeed one is likely to do when one knows that life itself depends on the shot. Fire, said Umbopa, in Zulu, and at almost the same instant the three rifles rang out loudly. Three clouds of smoke hung for a moment before us, and a hundred echoes went flying away over the silent snow. Presently the smoke cleared, and revealed a great buck lying on its back and kicking furiously in its agony. We gave a yell of triumph. We were saved. We should not starve. Weak as we were, we rushed down the intervening slope of snow, and in ten minutes from the time of firing, the animal's heart and liver were lying smoking before us. But now a new difficulty arose. We had no fuel, and therefore could make no fire to cook them at. We gazed at each other in dismay. "'Starving men must not be fanciful,' said Good. "'We must eat raw meat. "'There was no other way out of the dilemma, "'and our gnawing hunger made the proposition less distasteful "'than it would otherwise have been. "'So we took the heart and liver "'and buried them for a few minutes in a patch of snow to cool them. "'Then we washed them in the ice-cold water of the stream, "'and lastly ate them greedily.' It sounds horrible enough, but honestly, I never tasted anything so good as that raw meat. In a quarter of an hour, we were changed men. Our life and our vigor came back to us. Our feeble pulses grew strong again, and the blood went coursing through our veins. But mindful of the results of overfeeding on starving stomachs, we were careful not to eat too much, stopping whilst we were still hungry. "'Thank God,' said Sir Henry. "'That brute has saved our lives. "'What is it, Quartermain?' "'I rose and went to look at the antelope, "'for I was not certain. "'It was about the size of a donkey "'with large curved horns. "'I'd never seen one like it before. "'The species was new to me. "'It was brown with faint red stripes "'and a thick coat. "'I afterwards discovered "'that the natives of that wonderful country "'called the species Inko.' It was very rare, and only found at great altitudes where no other game would live. The animal was shot fairly high up on the shoulder, though whose bullet it was that brought it down we could not, of course, discover. I believe that Good, mindful of his marvelous shot at the giraffe, secretly set it down to his own prowess, and we didn't contradict him. We'd been so busy satisfying our starving stomachs that we had hitherto not found time to look about us. But now, having said Umbopa to cut off as much of the best meat as we were likely to be able to carry, we began to inspect our surroundings. The midst had now cleared away, for it was eight o'clock, and the sun had sucked it up, so we were able to take in all the country before us at a glance. I know not how to describe the glorious panorama which unfolded itself to our enraptured gaze. I've never seen anything like it before, nor shall, I suppose, again. Behind and over us towered Sheba's snowy breast, and below, some five thousand feet beneath where we stood, lay league upon league of the most lovely champagne country. Here were dense patches of lofty forest. There a great river wound in a silvery way. To the left stretched a vast expanse of rich, undulating veldt or grassland, on which we could just make out countless herds of game or cattle, at that distance we couldn't tell which. This expanse appeared to be ringed in by a wall of distant mountains. 
To the right, the country was more or less mountainous, that is, solitary hills stood up from its level, with stretches of cultivated lands between, amongst which we could distinctly see groups of dome-shaped huts. The landscape lay before us like a map in which rivers flashed like silver snakes, and alp-like peaks crowned with wildly twisted snow wreaths rose in solemn grandeur, whilst over it all was the glad sunlight and wide breadth of nature's happy life. Two curious things struck us as we gazed. First, that the country before us must lie at least five thousand feet higher than the desert we had crossed, and secondly, that all the rivers flowed from south to north. As we had painful reason to know, there was no water at all on the southern side of the vast range on which we stood, but on the northern side were many streams, most of which appeared to unite with the great river we could trace winding away farther than we could follow it. We sat down for a while and gazed in silence at this wonderful view. Presently, Sir Henry spoke. "'Isn't there something on the map about Solomon's great road?' he said. I nodded, my eyes still looking out over the far country. "'Well, look! There it is!' And he pointed a little to our right. Good and I looked accordingly, and there, winding away towards the plain, was what appeared to be a wide turnpike road. We had not seen it at first because it, upon reaching the plain, turned behind some broken country. We did not say anything, at least not much. We were beginning to lose the sense of wonder. Somehow it did not seem particularly unnatural else that we should find a sort of Roman road in this strange land. We accepted the fact. That was all. Well, said Good, it must be quite near as if we cut off to the right. Hadn't we better be making a start? This was sound advice, and so soon as we had washed our face and hands in the stream, we acted on it. For a mile or so we made our way over boulders and across patches of snow, till suddenly, on reaching the top of the little rise, there lay the road at our feet. It was a splendid road, cut out of solid rock, at least fifty feet wide, and apparently well kept. But the odd thing about it was that it seemed to begin there. We walked down and stood on it, but one single hundred paces behind us, in the direction of Sheba's breast, it vanished the whole surface of the mountain being strewn with boulders interspersed with patches of snow. "'What do you make of that, Quartermain?' asked Sir Henry. I shook my head. I could make nothing of it. "'I have it,' said Good. "'The road no doubt ran right over the range and across the desert the other side, but the sand of the desert has covered it up, and above us it has been obliterated by some volcanic eruption of molten lava. This seemed a good suggestion. At any rate, we accepted it and proceeded down the mountain. It was a very different business traveling along downhill on that magnificent pathway with full stomachs from what it had been traveling uphill over the snow quite starved and almost frozen. Indeed, had it not been for melancholy recollections of poor Vent Vogel's sad fate, and of that grim cave where he kept company with the old Dom, we should have been positively cheerful, notwithstanding the sense of unknown dangers before us. Every mile we walked the atmosphere grew softer and balmier, and the country before us shone with a yet more luminous beauty. 
As for the road itself, I never saw such an engineering work, though Sir Henry said that the great road over the St. Gotthard in Switzerland was very much like it. No difficulty had been too great for the old-world engineer who designed it. At one place we came to a great ravine, three hundred feet broad and at least a hundred deep. This vast gulf was actually filled in, apparently with huge blocks of dressed stone, with arches pierced at the bottom for a waterway, over which the road went sublimely on. At another place it was cut in zigzags out of the side of a precipice, five hundred feet deep, and in a third it tunneled right through the base of an intervening ridge, a space of thirty yards or more. Here we noticed that the sides of the tunnel were covered with quaint sculptures, mostly of mailed figures driving in chariots. One, which was exceedingly beautiful, represented a whole battle scene with a convoy of captives being marched off in the distance. Well, said Sir Henry, after inspecting this ancient work of art, it is very well to call this Solomon's Road, but my humble opinion is that the Egyptians have been here before Solomon's people ever set foot on it. If that isn't Egyptian handiwork, all I have to say, it is very much like it.